to the to religion and praxis uh, our podcast finished this year with a very very exciting uh, uh, episode a book um, a putinism post-soviet russian regime ideology written by uh, professor mikhail suslov who is a professor at the copenhagen university and the leading voice in uh, for many of us uh, reading about russian history and politics a renowned author uh, whose interest focuses on the evolution of liberal ideologies in non-Western context. His work extensively examines the Russian right-wing, geopolitical, church-related concepts, visions, and utopias, um, mostly interested in intellectual development of Russian, Soviet, and post-Soviet political philosophy. And Professor Suslov's current research aims mostly to understand the essence, role, and intellectual roots of Putinism as new competitor to liberal democracy, an ideology with considerable international appeal and potential to resonate with many other ideologies such as populism, right-wing communitarianism, traditionalist anti-globalism, religious fundamentalism, and so on. Professor Zuslov's recent publications include co-edited volumes, Contemporary Russian Conservatism, Problems, Paradoxes, and Dangers, the Post-Soviet Politics of Utopia, Language, Fiction, and Fantasy in Russia, Pan-Slavism and Slavophilia in Contemporary Central and Eastern Europe, and Monograph Geopolitical Imaginations, Ideology and Utopia in Post-Soviet Russia, as well as the recent one, the most recent one, which we will be today um, discussing Putinism, Post-Soviet Russian Regime Ideology. And we are very happy to have you here today. Uh, we're honored that we're looking forward to this talk. Professor Suslom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tornike, for inviting me. That's uh, my great pleasure and honor. Great. And let's get uh, directly to the to the questions. So um, let's let's bring a broader sort of fundamental um, sort of framework. What 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 is Putinism about? If we have to just pin it down to uh, for a simple audience, w what is the Putinism concept about? Hmm. Yeah, I, I try to pinpoint the essence of Putinism as uh, a response to the problem of imitation in the process of Westernization. This problem was humiliating for so many Russians, but not only Russians, think about Poland or Hungary as well. Uh, and the, the failure of transition in the 90s um, could be accounted for this sense of humiliation and uh, the lack of personal agency when you think that the best thing which you can possibly do is to repeat somebody else's past, uh, past and um, uh, previous uh, stages of development. Think that uh, for millions of Russians, the possible future in 20 years from now would be to become like second Denmark 50 years before. 
And when you think about it in this way, it takes away the joy of life. It kills the purpose of life. So I think that Putinism is appealing to so many Russians precisely because it says that, no, actually, Russia has its own path. It is not just repeating uh, the Western guidelines um, and uh, that this special path is uh, somehow relevant to the whole world. So here we are back to our familiar old messianism. Is it is it primarily a response to perceived external threats or internal search for national identity and unity? Uh, I think both, but primarily this is definitely in the line of searching for Russia's new identity after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because uh, uh, Russia specifically faced quite serious problems on the way of understanding and reinterpreting its own past. Because um, you can speak about three possible models on how you can uh, deal with uh, traumatic problems some past in history. Uh, the first is uh, the way how post-Soviet republics dealt with that. So this is the narrative of liberation. And this is very straightforward, perhaps sometimes oversimplifying, but it is straightforward and appealing. Basically, it tells you the story that the country was fighting for its liberation, and then it finally became free, and everyone uh, lived happily ever after. But it doesn't work with Russia, because, yeah, uh, there were modest attempts to say that Russia was... Uh, subjugated by the Soviet Union, and then in 1991, Russia liberated itself from the Soviet Union. But for so many Russians, Soviet Union and Russia were synonyms, so this way was closed, basically. It was not so yeah, attractive for people to believe that they got liberated, liberated from what? From themselves. Uh, so the second way is the German way, which requires um, the total overhaul, total um, reconsideration of your identity and previous past, and rejection of your previous past. Uh, I'm talking about um, um, uh, the way how Germany coped with uh, its Nazi um, past. And this way was also closed for Russia for... Of course, the Soviet Union was uh, the period of um, uh, uncountable uh, huge sufferings of so many people, but simultaneously the Soviet Union was also the period of so important accomplishments. Uh, I'm talking about um, the victory during the Second World War, for example, uh, technological breakthrough, uh, then just look at statistics. Um, the Soviet GDP share in the world GDP was almost 10%, the highest which Russia ever achieved in its uh, thousand years history. Today's Russian GDP share is less than 2%. So whenever you are talking about uh, all these uh, crimes of Stalinism, Gulag, and so on and so forth, there would be a person who would say, but what about Gagarin? Or what about the victory during after the Second World War? Or what about Russian-Soviet um, uh, technological... This is part of the Soviet past, and it will always be part of the Soviet past. So you can't actually uh, um, get rid of the Soviet past in an easy way. So you have to find a different way how to, how to reconstruct your identity. And this way is uh, similar more or less to how um, post-Frankist Spain is dealing with the past, which is partially sending this past into the shadow, 
partially uh, criticizing it, partially accepting it, uh, but in a more dramatic way. I wonder, I wonder how significant is the influence of the Orthodox Church on Putinism, particularly in shaping its core values and messianic narratives. I wonder also on the uh, on on. I mean, there, there have been debates, and I was involved in them. Some of them, the the role and the agency of the church in the international mm -hmm. affairs. Many people are. To my personal feeling, are reducing the role of the church to the instrumental function. So basically, it's just the instrument of the regime. Um, basically, the main pillar is the state, but the church is somewhat in the background. I often argue with the with the, the, this crew that well, there is a lot the church actually offers, and I I believe one of the most demonstrable offerings is this kind of messianic um, narrative about the core values and its sort of vision and division of society, but also the civilizationism, Christian civilizationism, whether one calls it Holy Rus or, mm -hmm. or Russian world, whatnot, but this idea of this macro category that is creating the past with the future and the mission of the nation. Yet again, that is sort of the, that, that doesn't necessarily argues against the realist interpretations of Russia's foreign policy, but it kind of complements it, I think. But yeah. <clears throat> but my, my question would be, how significant is the influence yeah. of the of the church? Yeah. Uh, well, in this debate, I'm rather on the side of those who um, say that the influence of the church should not be exaggerated. Um, I'm not saying that the church is completely instrumental, uh, just part of the um part of the toolkit of the russian political regime to solve its uh, ad hoc problems i think that the impact is long lasting and quite fundamental but i think that the church especially in the last 10 years or so is becoming a uh, liability rather than a set of the regime for one simple reason because uh, um, the religious values are not being bought by the russian society they're not popular so if you look at the statistics, uh, you have quite few uh, Russians who stand for the ban of abortions, for example, only 2%. Uh, very few people embrace all these um, talks of the church about traditional values, morality, faith in God, and so on and so forth. And when you, when you have such a thoroughly secularized population, then the church is becoming a hindrance, an obstacle to creating a successful ideology than, than a helping hand. But it was not uh, always like that. I think this is, this is how things are right now. But previously, especially I'm talking about the period 2009-2014 approximately, this was the period when the church and the state were looking eye to eye, basically. Mm. The, the influence was not unidirectional. It was not like uh, the state was just accepting what the church is telling it. It was rather, they were rather moving on the parallel tracks in uh, constant negotiation and dialogue. So when you look at some uh, specific ideological components of Putinism, such as uh, Russian world or the concept of basic values, then they emerged more or less simultaneously in the secular and in the religious milieus. And then they were discussed among them, among these two parties. 
so let's take for, as an example the concept of basic values, which was suggested by Patrick Kirill in 2009. And the idea basically meant that uh, there is a civilization, which is Russian civilization, and this civilization has a set of values which is radically different from a set of values of some other civilizations, like Western civilization. So this was a, um, a radical negation of Western universalism. So as it is written in the Declaration of Independence of the United States, uh, it is assumed that all people value three things, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And uh, uh, the Russian church, and together with the church, the Russian political rulers, they were emphatically against that. They believed that and continue to believe that uh, there is a special value, a special set of values for Russia, special set of values for uh, Chinese, special set of values for the Arab world, special set of values for the Latin America, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, this assumption was uh, embodied in the concept of basic values. But then these basic values were debated also in uh, the so-called patriotic, state patriotic club of the United Russia Party. United Russia Party was the, and is the ruling party, um, the most important party in Russia. And it was debated inside this party and uh, all these uh, talks about basic values found their way to the highest level, including uh, presidential administration and president himself. So um, it was not, uh, it doesn't look like, um, the presidential administration simply um, copied what the church said. It looks like uh, it looks like these ideas were hovering somewhere in the air, and they were debated relatively independently in the church and in the secular milieus. Yeah, let me just re maybe rephrase the, the, the somewhat the question that I wanted to ask next. But let's say. We, we 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 buy the argument that the church's role is overestimated and maybe oversolved by some scholars as the major factor. But to understand Putinism well, we need to understand probably how Putinism is interested in cracking the system and using different sort of um, ideologies which are out there and then pitching the one which is relevant to the context at the time when it's relevant for its own agenda. So basically... There is this Russian world or religious conservatism, and at the time when it becomes relevant, the issues get instrumentalized. Which issue, which issues, which values, which aspects? Mm -hmm. When this is depending on the context, mm -hmm. but the church is like a the, the state is a primary um, voice. If we buy that, <clears throat> then the question is, and another kind of assumption, that Russian regime, to my understanding, <clears throat> pretty much relies on the crisis. They need to be having the crisis, which they handle. Mm -hmm. But the crisis has never had to get out of control. To, it has to be controlled crisis, and the state has to be the sandler, handler of the crisis. Yeah. But the the church has provides this mythology, which this abstract, as well as other agencies, as well as other actors, nationalists and you know other realists, perhaps. But the church gives that constantly because because of its canonical territoriality concept and value, moral and basic uh, concepts which are easily to interpret. And because they are so vague and easily to ambiguous and ambiguous to interpret, the state, whenever it decides to, uses that for hijacking the religious agenda in a way. Do you find that convincing or not? 
Uh, yes, more or less. Uh, with one reservation, one caveat, I think that the, the, the degree of flexibility of the regime ideology uh, is exaggerated in the literature as well. Uh, I think that the, um, Marlene Leroy, the former scholar of Russian um, political regime and ideology, suggested the metaphor of a jazz band, ideology like a jazz band, when uh, all musicians are playing their own tune within one kind of general concept. Um, I think I, I would suggest a different, perhaps stronger metaphor. It's like the bowl, the salad bowl, where you can put different ingredients. But if you want to produce a particular kind of salad, say a Caesar salad, then you can't add something which does not pass, like you can't add herring in the uh, Caesar salad. So the same is with um, the ideology of Putinism. There are some things which are absolutely idiosyncratic and unthinkable and incommensurable to uh, Putinism, such as uh, liberal values, liberalism in general. so there is a kind of um, rigid grid of uh, principles on which the whole edifice of Putinism is, is constructed. Um, so it's not it's not totally flexible uh, on the side of the regime just to cherry pick whatever ideas they want. Uh, they can cherry pick only particular ideas. And how does Putinism compare with previous Russian ideologies in its approach to nationalism and religion and state power? Is there any compelling difference? Yeah, uh, I can identify both differences and similarities. So we are talking about three um, waves or three different kinds of Russian uh, official ideologies. The first is the so-called triad. This is the concept which was uh, suggested by the Minister of Education, Uvarov, uh, in the middle of uh, 19th century. And quite interestingly that in uh, November this year, a statue of Uvarov was inaugurated in uh, St. Petersburg. Um, and the triad basically means three principles, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. Then you have Marxism-Leninism during the Soviet period, and now, as I claim, you have the third Russian official ideology, which is Putinism. Um, and they all are similar in, uh, in the way how the state's role is defined. The state is defined as uh, an agency which protects the area from the uh, external aggression. So you have also the component of anti-Westernism inscribed in all three ideologies. And then the state is responsible for setting uh, setting the path, setting uh, the step or identifying the um, development stages for the country. Um, I think, however, the differences are perhaps more important than similarities. Unlike uh, two other official ideologies, Putinism lacks a clear utopian vision or the end goal. Um, And yeah, this is obvious that for triad, for the 19th century, the end goal was identified by the uh, orthodox faith. For Marxism-Leninism, the end goal was uh, Marxist utopia of communist future. And for contemporary Russian political ideology, what is the end goal? It is defined negatively. The end goal is uh, destruction of the Western hegemony, basically. But so what? So comes what comes after that? It's not clear. 
So that's the, that's the that's the actual uh, utopian vision, you think? Yeah, it's the actual utopian vision, but it is a thin or shallow utopian vision because it's defined negatively. So the, uh, there is no positive content in it. The end goal for Putinism is to destroy Western hegemony and to let all civilization civilizations blossom in their own way. Um, but what is the end goal for the human civilization or for one particular civilization is not clear. It's a kind of a, I mean, we're talking about the basic uh, values uh, concept. It's kind of a kind of a Russian rebuke to Huntington, right? In a way, it's a kind of a Russian version of clashes of civilizations. In a way. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, Huntington was tremendously important for Russian political uh, elite and for Russian uh, intellectual debates in the 90s and later on. Uh, Huntington put on uh, the basis of uh, other thinkers such as um, um, Nikolai Danilevsky, for example, or Toynbee, produced a very powerful uh, thrust towards reinterpreting history in civilizational terms. And it is consequential because before that, you have this uh, uh, arrow-like understanding of history with some end goal in sight, like communion, for example. And now it's no longer the arrow, it's like it's a lake, and the boat is sailing on the lake in all possible directions. The only goal for your boat is uh, is not to capsize, it's just to sail, uh, keep yourself afloat. If you remember the famous saying from 2010, uh, don't rock the boat. So you can identify the, the, the essence of Putinist ideology as don't rock the boatism. So just yeah. keeping the boat afloat without them, without the vision of where this boat should sail. And this is incredibly important, I think, for, for, for generally generally understanding the facets of Putinism. How well does Putinism resonate with the general Russian population and the intellectual elite? Does it truly reflect their concerns and aspirations? I think yes. Uh, I think it reflects both uh, the aspirations of the elites and the general population. Uh, I can judge about that by looking at the behavior of the elites, especially after the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Uh, very few defectors you have, actually. Very few defectors from um, from the Russian political elite to a different camp, very, very few dissenters. So it's, it looks like Putin is really resonated uh, within the Russian political elite, which where I can't see any meaningful uh, cleavage or um, dissidents so far. But perhaps even more consequential is to talk about the Russian um, population. Um, it is important, especially in the context of the war. So if you look at statistics, how many people uh, support the war, uh, and the figure is quite large, it's more than 70%. But what is more important is uh, the support is in the in the reverse correspondence to the educational level. I mean, so the, we, the more educated you are. We had the problem with the voice, I think. So can you uh, repeat your, uh, the, from the part, the support, we lost your voice. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, to repeat about the population's response to uh, Putinism. Yeah, yeah, so I mean that we can tease out some interesting information when we look at the support of the war. Um, and the figure is large enough, it's more than 70%, but what is more important is that the support of the war is in the reverse correspondence to the educational level, meaning that the more educated a Russian is, the more likely it is that he or she would support the war. 
which is counterintuitive. You could probably expect that it is the other way around, but no. Um, and it it requires an explanation. And my explanation is that you can't explain Putinism by the power of propaganda. Uh, actually, I'm on this side of uh, the debates about propaganda, that propaganda is never a unidirectional uh, thrust of ideas. It's not just you consume the propaganda and become indoctrinated. I think that um, people always retain their agency in choosing which ideas they believe in and which they don't. Uh, so Putinism is not just about propaganda, it's about the deeper resonance with people's political value. Uh, political values. Uh, and here I'm talking specifically about uh, such values as uh, uh, strong hand, justice. So this, uh, according to statistics which I have at my disposal, uh, there are two largest political values to which the vast majority of Russians subscribe. Strong hand or strong power, imperial um, prestige and so on, and uh, justice. And Putinism provides both. So when you put these two groups of people for justice and for um, strong hand, then it gives you approximately uh, the Putinist's constituency 70% plus. However, I claim that there is an alternative to that. that Putinism is uh, really very popular, but it's not the fate of the Russian people. There could be a different constituency, political constituency. I'm talking about uh, two values. One is, again, justice, and another is self-development and human rights. And statistics show that around 40% of Russians actually value self-development and human rights, just like in the normal Western country. So when you combine these two values, justice and human rights, you will get the political party of social democrats, just like in Scandinavia. The problem with Russia is that they don't have the party of social democrats. Uh, social democracy. Uh, perhaps you can look into the direction of Communist Party of Russian Federation, but with all the nationalist extravaganza, it definitely is not a good voice of social democracy. So, uh, responding to the question, what if not Putin, then my response would be it is social democracy. Why does it not work? Why no, nobody's because... creating the party? Yeah, uh, well, because of the nature of authoritarian regime, it destroyed all possibilities. So the actual um, competitor to Putin was not uh, Navalny, were not liberal or nationalist uh, leaders, but the actual competitor to Putin was always uh, a hypothetic social democratic leader, perhaps Zyuganov. Zyuganov was definitely uh, bought by the regime a long time ago, and he... Uh, he, uh, the poisonous stink was taken away from uh, Zyuganov in this sense. It's interesting that you mentioned the more educated, the more supportive of the war. How do you explain it sociologically? <laughs> like, what is at the stake? Like, one might say, well, there's a lot linked to the social capital and kind of the interests mm -hmm. of the elites, that they are so ingrained in the system that mm -hmm. they are the ones accessing the network, they are the ones beneficiaries, so they want the war continue, not to get the status challenged. But what will be the 
like uh, you know other yeah. explanation yeah difficult to say i'm not a sociologist but i have my hypothesis uh so if you look at this uh, dynamics mm -hmm. then the more educated you are the more likely you support the war but then if you are very educated and if you work in science then the support of war uh drops uh, precipitously so only eight percent of people who work in academia support the war in russia according to statistics which i have and this is mostly levada um, surveys. So my interpretation is simple. I think that uh, the level of education reflects the level of uh, well-being, and uh, the more dispossessed or economically miserable people are, the less likely that they would subscribe to Putinism because simply they kind of combine the economic dissatisfaction with political dissatisfaction. We have some evidence behind that because uh, another um survey shows you that the more um well off you are the richer you are the more likely you are to support the war as well uh, so again uh you have the same um basic assumption or hypothesis when you look at this table is that um rich people simply can relate to Putinism in a better way because Putinism gave, gave them their their material well-being but if we look at the the well-being, the if majority of the Russians are not well off. That's the fact. And yet many scholars say that, well, Putin appeals to the ordinary people. That's what keeps him in power. But as far as I understand, you're saying that it's not as, as easy uh, as it seems, because Putin appeals to different groups with different interests. So it actually appeals to the political nationalist agenda, to the groups which are... Um, internationalism appeals to the elites with their own network and protection. Mm -hmm. So that is more, way more adaptable and multifaceted, right? Oh, definitely so. Yeah, I mean, Putinism is uh, a very clever tool to keep in power. Uh, it can definitely speak to so many groups of people, including uh, relatively rich people, relatively poor people, but mostly to the people who don't have the um, dissatisfaction about the regime. So people who could be defined as uh, middle-class Russian style. So um, speaking about the well-being of Russians, this is uh, the relative phenomenon, of course. So the claim that the majority of Russians are not well off, it requires um, consideration in relation to what. So if you compare Russian economic well-being right now with, with the past in Russia, then actually Russia has never lived as good as it is now. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm saying that well, the the, the poverty, some uh, some some basic measures which are, are are correlated with the general well-being, the levels of education, the healthcare, access to healthcare, etc. So, mm -hmm. those stats are forced compared to 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 what? But uh, the, the, it is not evidential that the people live well off under under Putinism, right? Mm, yeah, well, again, I'm not an economist. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, the economic growth in terms of uh, GDP has more or less stopped after the crisis 2008. So Russian uh, GDP uh, did not change much in the past 15 years or so. In this sense, yes, Putinism is, of course, not uh, conducive for economic growth. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the history in the short-term perspective, for example, uh, when we are talking about the war in Ukraine, then with all these massive social uh, pains, the Putinist regime is actually creating well-being for the most dispossessed people. Uh, 
Um, so I, I think it's, it also brings interesting question about the nature of Putinism. So one might wonder how Putinism is different from, you know, populism, mm. populist authoritarianism, whatnot. I mean, there's so many frameworks out there, but is Putinism an effective cognitive prism for the Russian mm. population, mm. providing them with a meaningful interpretation of their place in the world and mm -hmm. current global dynamics, yeah. or yeah. is it yet another form of populism? What is it exactly? How can we pin it down? Well, uh, first, first and foremost, yes, Putinism is a form of Putin, uh, populism. As I claim in the book, Putinism could be described um, as an ideology by referring to three ideologies. This is populism, uh, right-wing or identitarian um, conservatism, and communitarianism. So yes, it's definitely a, a form of populism. Uh, when you are asking about the cognitive prism, whether Putinism is an effective cognitive prism, so we have to understand that this is a question which is different from the question whether Putinism resonates with the population or, um, or the elite. Yes, it does. But is it an effective cognitive prism towards making my value judgment? Because it's not an empirical thing. It's uh, kind of something related to political and moral philosophy. Uh, I think that communitarianism on which Putinism is grounded is wrong all the way through. So I think that it gives Putinism the wrong prism to look at the world. Let me be specific. I think that uh, what characterizes communitarianism is exactly this belief that you don't have universal values, that you have several civilizations, and for each, for each civilization you have its separate set of values. Um, and I think this is just factually wrong. Uh, when you are talking about the wrongness of an ideology, you can look at two levels. It could be wrong on its own premises, and it could be wrong by its consequences. So when we are talking about Nazi Germany, for example, then Nazism is wrong on its own premises, because it assumes that you have the race of masters, the race of slaves, that you have to create Lebensraum on the East by decimating the local population, and so on. Uh, so it's, uh, it is... Uh, Man-hating, it is uh, ugly, morally ugly ideology on its own premises. When you look at Marxism, for example, then there is nothing morally ugly in its uh, basic premises, but it led to so huge human losses during the 20th century. So it, these human losses prejudice the soundness of Marxism by, by its by, by its consequences. I think Putinism is on the same level as Marxism in this sense. There is nothing intrinsically, um, intrinsically sinister or evil in Putinism itself. But I think that when you look at what Putinism brought to Russia, first and foremost, and to Russia's neighbors, then my assumption would be that it is terribly wrong on, on, on the way how it looks on the world. It's, it's interesting the, the the adaptability part of Putinism. Given Putinism's apparent adaptability, how might it evolve in response to domestic and international challenges? What are possible directions it might take? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the obvious point of growth for Putinism is to play with the concept of justice and to step into the domain of uh, left-wing agenda. So this is what is happening in the past couple of years, actually, when Putin, Putin himself and his henchmen, they uh, relate explicitly to 
um, uh, to the idea of uh, social justice, geopolitical justice, anti-colonialism in quite paradoxical way. Um, uh, and also, if you um, factor in the possibility of Russia's rapprochement with uh, China and perhaps some um, strategic partnership with um, uh, the Communist Party of China, then I think that there is a possibility for Putinism to tap into uh, into socialism and to create this convergence, right-wing convergence, which was called in the 90s uh, red-brown uh, opposition. So in our case, we can talk about this um, international coalition of traditionalist and leftist regimes. And if this happens, then Putinism and Putin's Russia has a good chance to become the leader of this coalition. Interesting. Are, are there inherent, I mean, we mentioned a few uh, you know, contradictions and you, you, uh, mm -hmm. I was fortunate to read the book, so I did a lot of interesting content. I highly recommend the, our listeners to Get the book SAP and read. If you want to understand Putinism, that's the book to go. Are there in inherent contradictions within Putinism that might limit its longevity or effectiveness as yeah, a guiding yeah. ideology for Russia? Mm. Yeah. On more general and abstract level, the contradiction of Putinism is between its universalism and particularism. On the one hand, it claims to be a universal ideology, but its universalism boils down to the statement that, that there should be no universalism in the world. Yeah? So it says, uh, all civilizations should blossom in their own way, no universalism. And this claim, no universalism, is universal, which created this intrinsic in, internal uh, paradox. But then when we look in more uh, specific cases, um, a huge paradox is connected with the key concept of Putinism, which is sovereignty. Uh, so the central premise of Putinism is that civilization should be sovereign, meaning independent, like an adult person in liberalism. Civilization uh, is uh, uh, civilization is like a this adult rational personality which should take the should take its own decision. But then what to do with uh, Ukraine, for example? So they claim that Russian civilization is sovereign, but then Ukraine is not sovereign. So who decides which part of the world is sovereign and which part is not sovereign? And if, and if they say that Ukraine has, not right, uh, has no rights to be sovereign, then maybe you can also claim that Russia is also just part of Western civilization and should not be sovereign. So this is uh, one of these paradoxes. Another paradox, um, it relates to the problem of um, isolationism. Uh, Putinism has a natural tendency towards isolationism. And you can see it on various planes of interpretation in various uh, contexts. For example, uh, relatively recently, uh, Dmitry Peskov, not the press secretary, but the special representative of President Putin in uh, issues of uh, technology. Uh, he wrote the article which is called The Island Russia, and he claimed that Russia should attain uh, technological sovereignty. Some other intellectuals, like Mizhuev, for example, uh, they claim that Russia should gain civilizational indifference. So 
or whatever the case, the bottom line is that many intellectuals are talking about the need for Russia to disengage from the world. But in order to disengage from the world effectively, you have to have a self-sufficient economy. So you can claim that in order to to gain this self-sufficiency, you have to get a better access to the sea, or you have to get a better access to some part of infrastructure. So basically you say that in order to become isolated, you have to expand fast, uh, to expand first and foremost, to um, a next part of Ukraine, for example. Uh, so this is another internal paradox of Putinism. Then we are talking about uh, justice. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a big concept right now. Um, and Putinism is expanding a lot on geopolitical justice, fighting against uh, neo-colonialism, as they call it. But then what about social justice? So social, it is pretty obvious that uh, both in Russia internally and internationally, you have huge dis, uh, uh, discrepancy between the rich and the poor. But how Russia is going to solve this problem? So the problem of injustice is global. But then Russia denies, Putin is Russia denies uh, this global framework. It argues that you, you should talk about several civilizations. So it addresses the problem which it a priori cannot solve. So yeah, these are just few examples which. That's, I that's extremely interesting um, and and very thoughtful uh, to to just mention that particular controversy in the light of Ukrainian war, and that gives me um, the the possibility to ask a question about the, the the invasion of Ukraine. How can we explain why Putinism needed the Ukrainian invasion? What was the rationale? Mm. What's your theory? Uh, well, two considerations uh, in relation to war in Ukraine. First, I saw the war coming before the, the war actually happened, and I saw it in ideology, because ideology provided for the need for a uh, fundamental confrontation with the West. So it was several years before the war actually started that it became clear that uh, Putinism requires this sort of uh, final confrontation with the West as the way how Russia can fulfill its own messianic purpose. Because Russian messianic purpose, as it is described by uh, major ideologists of the regime, is to stop the West, to stop the West, to uh, destroy the Western hegemony, basically. So this is the universal liberatory mission, as uh, Putin is described it. Um, but when it comes to Ukraine specifically, I'm not a military specialist, so I presume that the decision to go to war was perhaps somewhat um, contingent, um, accidentally, perhaps accidentally um, adopted. Uh, but it is also true that uh, the idea that Ukraine has no own sovereignty, that Ukraine is just part of Russia, was explicitly prescribed in Putin's article from summer 21, and just uh, several months after that, the war actually started. My kind of educated guess is that had Putin known the actual consequences, he would have refrained from starting the war in the, in the form which it actually took. But that the element of confrontation with the West was deeply ingrained in ideology is obvious for me. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, in what I mean, I'm trying to go back to the questions of the church a little bit, <clears throat> and especially the we, we we briefly mentioned the basis of social doctrine. Uh, what are the key tenets of the of the basis of social doctrine, and how do they influence the church's role in society? Yeah, it should be understood that the basis of the social doctrine adopted in 2000 reflected this time. And this time was the time when the church believed that it can change the rule of the game. So, well, in order to explain my point, I need to introduce the concept of post-secularism in a brief way. So, uh, post-secularist, post-secular situation is the situation in which we live now, is when the church has to compete with other providers of leisure time, like you decide whether to go to the church or to the theater or to cinema or to sit with your friends or to go to restaurants and so, so on and so forth. So the church can have its place in society, but it has to compete with other forms and other um, actors. Uh, but the Russian Orthodox Church wanted actually to roll history back to the time when it decided the rules of the game. When you don't have the option whether to go to the church on Sunday or not, you have to. When you don't have the option whether to have instruction, religious instruction in school or not, you have to. And this uh, um, enthusiastic approach to the church possibility was characteristic of the period around uh, 2000, because this was the period when you have a huge constituency of uh, Russian people who identified themselves as the Orthodox, but then you have just few people who, a small fraction of the population who actually go to the church, who actually um, attend the most important religious services, liturgy, for example, uh, who participate in the life of their parish. Uh, so this discrepancy between 70-plus percent of those who are Orthodox and 2-3% of actual churchgoers gave the impression that as time goes on, then the number of actual churchgoers would grow up to, to this figure, the higher estimate, 70-something percent. Uh, but it never happened. So today, after 20, 23 years after the adoption of this basis of the social we can understand that those promises that the church would churchize, they use this word, churchize the world, uh, the Russian society, it, it didn't actually happen. So, yeah, the basis was filled with this promise, this hope, but it didn't come true. And despite the constitutional principle of the church-state separation, how has the Russian church positioned itself with respect to social values and moral judgments? Uh, they definitely wanted to become the ultimate instance of the moral um, judgment on all important issues. And this is prescribed exactly in the basis of the social doctrine. It, it actually reflects on this idea that the church should set up its own rules of the game, that all morally important issues in society should be uh, the business of the church. Um, but again, there is a huge discrepancy between what they actually wanted and what is actually happening in society. So you can see this discrepancy on so many, in so many contexts and examples. So take abortion, for example. So the church is quite emphatic against the abortion. But then abortions are not only free, not only uh, legal, but also free, free of charge for Russians. Russian uh, legislation in relation to abortion is one of the most liberal in the world so far. 
if you take, for example, the presence of God in Constitution, you know, that the amended Constitution 2020, it mentions God. But it mentions God in a very uh, oblique way, indirect way. It's not like in the Hungarian Constitution where it says that uh, Hungarian people is united by tradition and God. So the Hungarian Constitution sort of postulates that God exists. But the Russian Constitution says literally this, that uh, Russian Federation observes or venerates uh, forefathers who passed on their tradition and believe in God to us. So the Russian Constitution, it basically says that we venerate the tradition of believing in God, not God himself, right? So yeah, yeah. It does not postulate the existence of God. It postulates the existence of tradition of believing in God. So you can please both sides. You can please the religious people and say, well, you have God in Constitution. But you can also please agnostics, atheists. You can say, well, but we do not postulate that God exists. Um take other contexts like like um, the army, for example, or the school. So, again, you have this uh, attempt of the church to be relevant, to be present in society, like, for example, in the army. And it is present in the army. But according to um, the official data, in the Russian army, you have slightly more than 300 uh, priests or chaplains military priests. The Russian army before the beginning of the war was uh, around one million people. And this is only soldiers, not counting all this um, supplementary personnel. So it, it means that you have one priest for 3,300 uh, soldiers. So in practice, it means that, well, very rarely when a soldier has a chance even to talk to a priest. Um, then if you look at the, uh, you probably know that there is a special political department in the Ministry of, uh, of the Defense. This is the heir to the Soviet Glavpur, the main uh, department for political propaganda. Um, so, yeah, you have basically this department of political propaganda in today's Russian army as well. Uh, but when you go to their website and look into the list of films which they advise that the officers would show to the soldiers, you have all this canonical Soviet wartime films about the war and post-Soviet films about the war and not a single film about religion. So I think that when it comes to the army, then the army leadership still relies on the old Soviet style of indoctrinating or maybe talk, uh, telling the right story about politics and history, rather than outsourcing this propaganda task to the church. Yeah. Before we finish, and we're uh, you know, six minutes away uh, from our uh, guillotine, uh, what are the common exaggerations and misconceptions about the Russian Orthodox Church's role in shaping the regime's ideology? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that the common mis misunderstanding and misinterpretation is to represent the church as a uh, as a boogeyman, the strong and omnipotent and uh, uh, aggressive agency. I think that its role should be assessed uh, realistically. Uh, 
it should be assessed realistically and in historical perspective. So uh, we can talk about the importance of the church in the previous decades, but now things are changing. For example, if you follow what Putin is saying, um, uh, in the last year, for example, he referred to Alexander Zinoviev, thinker, uh, Soviet time thinker and dissident Alexander Zinoviev, and he was an atheist. So this 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 is quite unexpected. Uh, even if you look at his most recent speech at the World Russian People's Assembly, and the World Russian People's Assembly is the largest um, church state platform for the church intellectuals to develop their ideological statements. Um, and it is presided by Patriarch Kirill himself. And Putin said, literally the following. He said that the most important principles of our policy should be um, observation of uh, sovereignty and justice for the purpose of liberating the world from Western hegemony. So he is mentioning sovereignty and justice. And uh, in this religious gathering, he is not mentioning uh, the church, he is not mentioning moral morality, he is not mentioning uh, faith in God, and so on and so forth. So he has definitely a different, different kind of agenda, which is uh, only slightly influenced by the church. But also when it comes to some practical issues like um, LGBT persecution, well, yes, of course, but simultaneously you have uh, cases when the state is uh, put into trial uh, activists who are attacking LGBT people. Uh, so these cases are not very numerous, but they are. It's not completely unthinkable that the state is actually cracking down on those who are uh, attacking LGBT activists. Uh, the same with abortions. You have, uh, as I mentioned, uh, these uh, religious discourses against the abortion, and then you have the, one of the most liberal uh, legislation about abortions. So it's uh, the role of the church could be described as yes, but. In other way, it could be described as the attempts to be relevant and important, but the actual, uh, the presence of the actual limitations. And um, how has have the church and state moved? on parallel tracks towards the similar ideological conceptualizations then, especially regarding the concept of fundamental values? Yeah, uh, it was between 2009-2014 uh, approximately uh, when both sides, the church and the state, adopted this communitarian understanding that you don't have universal values but only civilization-specific values. And, and, and obviously, major major deal then is how has the underdevelopment of under development of Russian nationalism and the conceptualizations of the we community influenced yeah. the use yeah. of terms such as common core values, common historical yeah, identity, mission, and, and destiny. Uh, yeah, it should be conceptualized on uh, a philosophical level. So whenever you are trying to describe your community, and any ideology is basically about describing your community, right, telling the story who you are. You can describe it in two ways. You can describe it who you are by setting your borders, like the community of Russians. This is uh, the territory and the people who live here or there. But then you have several instances when uh, it becomes unclear where Russia starts and where it ends. 
As you know, Putin himself uh, half-jokingly said that Russia ends nowhere. You have also this um, popular among Russians um, joke that with whom Russia borders, with whom it wants. Uh, so when you don't know when you, where your country actually ends, so how can you grasp who you are? There is still one way how to grasp who you are, by looking back in history and saying that uh, you are those who were fighting with uh, Mongols uh, at Kulikova field, for example. You are those who were fighting against uh, uh, Napoleon on the uh, Borodino field. You, were, you are those who were fighting against Hitler and so on and so forth. So you can refer to your community by tracing its historical genealogy and arguing that you are the same nation. And, uh, from which is completely untrue from the viewpoint of liberal understanding of the things. And the last question to finish, and of course in a very uh, pessimistic style as we are used to in this podcast, <laughs> what are the implications of potential radicalization of Putinism in either social democratic or orthodox fundamentalist direction? How might this path affect Russia's domestic and foreign policies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that uh, religious fundamentalism is coming up in Russia. I don't see it inside. Uh, what I can see is the slight, not actually very probable, but slight possibility of radical nationalization, which can happen in case if Russia loses the war in Ukraine. And this can actually be fraught with um, a lot of destructive and illiberal potential. So think about uh, um, interwar Germany. Uh, the most likely way how uh, Putinism can be radicalized, however, is uh, on the way of its uh, in, uh, incorporating uh, left-wing ideas. So if it becomes uh, a um, the beacon of uh, this conservative left-wing international, uh, on this way uh, Putinism can become actually a um, major political force in the world. Incredibly interesting. Everyone on um, on Spotify and other means, Putinism, post-Soviet Russian regime ideology by Professor Mikhail Suslov, the book to take on your shelves and, uh, and read as, as soon as possible. A very interesting book. Highly recommend it. And thank you very much for a great conversation. We are now off. And um, best wishes for the upcoming new year and all the celebrations to everybody. Thank you. <laughs>